You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 more minutes with Janet and Chris Morris. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm J. Daniel Sawyer. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an extraordinary opportunity for us to sit down with some extraordinary creators in order to explore their extraordinary crafts in the never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, indeed. And dear friends, if Master Sawyer's voice should echo resonantly in your ears, it, it could be... For any number of reasons. It could be that you recognize the name from his multiple publications, including the Lantham series, the Antithesis Progression, uh, uh, Down from Ten, which is a close personal favorite of mine, my introduction to the Potosphere, uh, Suave Rob's Double X Daring Do, which has recently been voiced by some brilliant voice actor. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> He's done yeah, some. They non- recently read it for Escape Pod. It's going to be a special feature for their uh, subscribers. That's right. Premium content, baby. Uh, He's also uh, written some fabulous nonfiction texts, uh, making tracks uh, for about audio production and throwing lead uh, for us writers that don't know weapons and guns. He's helping us so we don't sound like complete dolts, for which we are grateful. He also recently produced Gail Carriger's first sci-fi tale, Crud Rat, which will be available on all fine audio shelves uh, uh, in in the coming months. Yes. Dan? Yep, that's the idea. Outstanding. And if none of those things are ringing the bell, then no doubt it's because Dan Sawyer was our very first guest host here on the roundtable. So this is this is a momentous moment. Dan, thank you so much for, for joining me as co-host for this very special episode, man. Oh, thanks for coming back. It's always fun. Absolutely. It really is. And and this this episode is is full of moved cheese. Uh, 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 all of the usual <laughs> stuff not happening. Uh, uh, we don't have an overblown Dave intro for this episode because our guest hosts were just on like a couple of months ago, and apparently they they had so much fun they wanted to come back. So so we're gonna dump all of that awesome time that I eat up usually with my intros. We're gonna dump it right <laughs> into the interview process. So dear friends, please welcome back after just a brief couple of months, the chroniclers of the sacred band of stepsons, the editors and curators of hell. I I, I mean the uh, uh, editors of the heroes in hell anthologies. Very different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the global okay. the global think tankers the thieves world weavers and welcome friends here at the roundtable podcast Janet and Chris Morris you two I cannot tell you how much a delight it is for me to welcome you back so soon thank you guys that's okay we had such a good time we decided that strategy is useless when battle is joined and we're coming back I love hand applause <laughs> how do you get a job as the editor and curator of hell. I uh, actually do. Um, well, we um, we were recruited to do. We had done Thieves World, and it was uh, very successful. And we had a um, an extra contract with Jim Bain for ten untitled books, and we could do anything we wanted. Um, so we went to Jim and said, you know, if we're going to do a shared universe, I think we could do one that was more cohesive. Um, <clears throat> how about Hear us in hell. And he said, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's how that started. And, you know, I called all my friends and said, if you don't get me a story by X date, I will kill you. And <laughs> so we had a pretty, because at that time, all of us old guys were young Turks, and we had a pretty stellar roster of people. And the first and the second book came out within the Nebula calendar year. And I had two stories, one from book one and one from book two nominated for a Nebula and one nominated and one a Hugo. And that kind of put hell on the map. Sure. You got but, street cred at that point. Oh, yeah. But I'll tell you, you cannot really do a trademark for hell. So there's, there's yeah. limit to what you can do. It's, it is, as we said in the cover, the greatest shared universe of all times because everybody thinks they know. <laughs> well, and, and this has gone on for what, what are you up to? 14 books now? 17. 17 books. But, but some are, first of all, most of them were 20th century um, because Jim, never one to let a good thing lie fallow, um, decided we were going to do two a year, which nearly killed us. Oh, my God. Um, because you got to get them in and then you got to collate them and then you got to get the, um, go back to them with the changes necessary to make it cohesive in order. Um, mm. So two a year, that was really too tough to do, but it got a lot of them out pretty fast. And some of them were spinoff novels, Carolyn Cherry, CJ Cherry, and I did two spinoff novels. And then she, she wanted to do her own. And I said, okay. So she had three, Chris Morris and I did a spinoff novel. David Drake did a spinoff novel. I can't remember whether it was with me or by himself. But um, <laughs> so we had a bunch of spin-off novels which were fun to do. We just picked it up in the 21st century, the new ones, which are, uh, there was no internet. There was no way to do what we can do today with the secret group on Facebook about making this cohesive. So now we've done four, um, Lawyers in Hell, Rogues in Hell, Dreamers in Hell, and Poets in Hell, which sounds like it's really soft and mushy, but it's really <laughs> butt kicker. Uh, oh, that sounds like so much fun. It is some, well, you know, it's invitational. If you really want an invitation, then he'll, um, Dave will give you my number. I'll put you in the group if you can cut it. It's oh, yeah, really absolutely. fun. So Heroes in Hell is rolling on, and I have just commissioned the first three spinoff novels for the new season. I found a writer in Kos, Greece, who knocks my socks off, and we're publishing a, um, a series of books for him. That begins with a book called The Nine, which is about the Ninth Legion of Rome that gets thrown into the future. And that's all I'm going to tell you about it because it is amazing. <laughs> um, he's just great. And so I'm off to my butts as usual and more than I can do. And Chris is doing audiobooks. And the Sacred Band audiobook is doing really well. He produced it. And after I begged him, narrated it and now he likes narrating so he's narrating i the sun which is of course my favorite book he got 10 cc's in his blood with sacred band <laughs> and and now he can't he can't get out of the studio yeah absolutely let me let me ask you this um and and we're gonna we're gonna kind of stick to the thirty thousand foot view and then get lost in the weeds at some point i'm sure but um both of you have such a a, a rich canon 
of creative work that's out there in the world. Chris, your music, uh, your your narration, Janet, your multiple uh, literary endeavors, and and both of you participated uh, in in the think tank and evolved some incredible insights that actually are impacting the world in in ways most people uh, can only dream of. So I'm curious, what would you want people most to know about your body of work? Oh, I guess... Um, for fiction, my favorite three works that we've ever done are I, the Sun, the biographical novel of Superluminous of Hadi, the Sacred Band novel, which is the new Sacred Band novel, which I just adore, and Out Passage, which was to me everything science fiction should be and nothing it shouldn't. Um, whether we do something additional to that, it probably Rhesus of Thrace. I've waited my whole life to do him, and I'm just starting. But like I, the Sun, that book's going to take some time. It, you don't just sit down there and, and kick it. You, everything has to be just right. Um, the non-lethal weapons, that's where I thought we would be the most renowned. And we were for a while when it got started, but the government decided it wanted to File the serial numbers off and claim it was internally. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's out. It's out there in the world. Whether whether you know your byline is on that or not, that's that's a significant piece of 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 idea that's been infused into the into the world governments. Yeah, it's on your Wikipedia page at least. Oh yeah, mm. and it started with science fiction when we were writing the Dream Dancer series. It became really obvious that if you punched a hole in the shell of the space habitat. It was not going to be good. So we were looking for alternatives to kinetic weapons. And being a little bit of a weapons freak myself, it wasn't that I'm trying to disarm us. It's that the Israelis were getting beaten by the Palestinians because the Palestinians were using less force. And so there's a political dimension to all these things. But there's people alive today that would not be alive if not for non-lethal options. When Bosnia-Herzegovina was happening, we used to get, we were still working with DOD then, um, we would get messages from colonels and, and lieutenants in the field saying, hey, this stuff saved lives today. We really like it. Um, the politics around changing how we make money in defense slowed it down because until the big guys got into position, um, then they really didn't want all that much made of non-lethals but it's there's high tech and low tech like everything else and i mean i can talk to you about non-lethals it's a different that's a briefing that's different um <laughs> but we need yes, security clearance for that so yeah yeah um but i'm really glad we did it it took 20 years it was worth it when i lie awake in the middle of the night thinking why is this so hard i got an answer you know because this really needs to be done and it landed on our bedpost so we did it, and the stuff is out there, and some of it hasn't yet been able to pass safety checks, but eventually it all will. And there'll be sets of options, chemical, um, electromagnetic, and kinetic, that are more usable in today's conflicts, and that's what we wanted to do, so we're happy. Not many people can say that they've actually saved lives, but, but you guys can, and that's awesome. 
That's fabulous. Chris, what about you? What about uh, your your body of work? What, what what should people know about it? I'm a third-generation editor, actually. My grandfather was a publisher, <clears throat> published volumes, encyclopedias, and poetry collections, and uh, did a pretty good job of it in Chicago in the turn of the century. My dad is a... Uh, is a photojournalist, uh, quite well known in that field, but not many people know what a photojournalist is. A picture editor is a guy who takes the pictures and makes stories out of them. So I'm more image literate than most of my generation. And yet the whole idea is to tell stories. And what we admire the most are the, the literature that survives the ages. If you're a songwriter, you want to write a standard, something that, that will survive you and be added to the lexicon, the songbook. If you're a novelist or a storyteller, of course, you want to do the same thing. And what we are trying to do is really just write mainstream, down the middle, good stories that will have enough truth and wit about the human condition to survive us. Noble, lofty goals. How, 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 how do you, how do you know something is true? How, how do you know if you've, if you've tapped that vein of truth? If it happened to you, most likely it's got something to it. <laughs> if it was a memorable experience, like we, we've just been going through this uh, adventure again with helping our animals on their way, and Rhesus of Thrace, Janet's uh, My new, new character, current love from ancient Greek. Uh, mythology and history uh, was a, a cult hero who among other things was known for his ability to commune with animals uh, such that in one point in the book he stands before an altar observed from a distance by spies and what they see are animals marching up to this altar and giving up their lives uh, to him. To him. And they, of course, reported back and they, they think he's a sorcerer. But really what it is, is this phenomenal personality who has survived death himself and is now able to um, transmute, I guess you'd say, uh, life forms of all sorts and is drawn to the mystery. And it's it's a Way cool story. Yeah, it's really cool. It's both. Plus, he swings a sword. So he's a killer and a healer, and that's an interesting combination. It's a contrast. That's that's almost an oxymoron. Well, I've had known about this character for a very long time. I first read the Iliad when I was in junior high school, um, but you you can't wrestle something complex and deep like that into story form until you're ready, and. I'm ready for this one, but as I say, I've got 20,000 words done, and the book will be 100 a quarter, maybe. Um, but, you know, books go where they want. The truth of a book is always really obvious when you're writing. The story tells you its own truth, and as far as truth with people, we survived at least 12,000 years because we found those ancient ruins in Turkey as a... a as a society that could make monuments and draw or chisel, I was here, documentation. And the only way we've done that is that we've learned to tell who's lying to us and who's not. People know truth when they hear it. 
And if there's something that my books give, they give the truth of the characters. And the time in, you know, in Washington, that glass ceiling is a really, it's still a real thing. It's just at higher levels than most people get. And <laughs> in those higher levels, they would allow him to tell them things that they would not listen to from me. And the ancient Egyptians said that a pharaoh had to have two things, Hugh and Sia. Hugh is transcendent perception, which I have, and Sia is commanding utterance, which he has. <laughs> so we would prepare it together, and then he would say it, and from him they would accept it. Wow, the gen- the gender bias is still strong, even 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 deep in there. But being a couple, you can get around it. Well, let me let me let me ask you guys this: um, a lot of the a lot of the the guest hosts that we have on here grow up. They grow up role playing games. They grow up reading comics. They grow up. Uh, uh, in this in this fandom that has grown exponentially, I think with the advent of the internet uh, uh, and and the the changes in the publishing structure, a lot of influences have have fostered this this current. And I, I don't want to say generation, but a mindset, a culture, this current culture of of fandom, and I, I get the impression just from your backgrounds and from how you approached things uh, that that wasn't your, your vector into this. You were intrigued by the stories, but, but you didn't have this, this rabid frothing fandom that we have uh, back in our day. Do do you sense that? uh, Do you sense a disconnect there or, or am I, am I off base on that? Um, Fandom was pretty rabid even way back then. We went to our first Lunacon shortly after we sold, the book that Fred Pohl bought for Bantam. And as soon as we got to the hotel, uh, we were shanghaied by some uh, spandex sporting um, fellas and girls who <laughs> dragged, us, dragged us into an elevator. And because Janet's hair was so long, they said, Rapunzel! <laughs> and we went. You know. um, so, and I love those people for their liberty you know they just want to get into characters stay there see what society will bear in terms of their having fun with it and that's very healthy Um, literacy is another thing we've got to preserve the storytelling tradition in terms of the use of the language so that succeeding generations will at least wonder what some of these words mean, look them up, and then start to use them or, or explore what a, a master of the language, and I'm not saying that that's who we are, but someone like uh, Asimov uh, can, can portray and put across using the most beautiful language on, on the planet. Um, again, back to the, the stuff that transcends its time. Shakespeare is very is not an easy read, you know. And there's <laughs> a, a lot of kids shy away because they don't understand the vernacular, the use, the meter, the rhyme, the way he puts together seemingly uh, unfamiliar terms to create an effect. And yet, when when you look at his legacy, you see immediately that we are still enthralled to those beautiful images and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. You know, it's just what a piece of work is man. That's Shakespeare. That's what what a piece of work comes and, from. And all these things that we I don't know if I'm answering any questions, but we just, <laughs> we just love the language. I, when we first came up, 
Well, I had, you know, I lived in the country. It was very rural here. I saved up 25, my parents paid me 25 cents per book report. And I saved up enough to buy a $175 horse, which looked very tame, but ran away with me every day. So <laughs> I learned how to avoid truths, too, because my parents had known how wild that horse was. I wouldn't have had him. I almost got killed a dozen times. Finally, the old guy at the barn said, honey, he keeps running you into the barn. If you want to stop him, he's got the bit in his teeth. Just swing your leg over and start to get off at a dead run. And so I learned to do that, and I had no problem with that horse after that. But <laughs> horses do that, too. You know, horses are about truth. You can't lie your way or cry your way out of a problem with a horse. And you really can't with your literature, either. When my father used to give me his fantasy and science fiction and amazing stories magazines to read after he finished, when I was in the, would have been third, fourth, and fifth grade, and took me when I was 13 to a Boston Science Fiction Society meeting. And all those guys were there, Asimov and those other engineers. There were maybe 12 guys in a room. Most of them were technical science people and me and my dad. So that was my entire experience with fandom, and it was protum, but I didn't know that. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Janet and Chris Morris after this brief promotional break. Under 30,000 feet of water, the exploration rig Leaguer has discovered an oil field larger than Saudi Arabia. With oil so sweet and pure, nations would go to war for the rights to it. But as the team starts drilling exploration wells in their race to claim the sweet crude, a deep rumbling beneath the ocean floor shakes them to their core. Something has been living in the oil. Paul E. Cooley's The Black is a techno-horror thriller reminiscent of movies such as Leviathan and The Thing and puts terror right into readers' ears. The Black, a free podcast novel available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. Ocean exploration will never be the same. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Janet and Chris Morris. I had been reading two paperbacks a night because our town had gotten a paperback bookstore. And I read one that really annoyed me. And I said, I can do better than this. <laughs> I know the name of it, but I won't tell you. Um, oh, come threw on. it in the garbage and decided to write Solistra. And a friend of ours knew an agent. And I was just writing it for Chris, single space, 900 pages, 900 words on the page. And we were reading it, and our friends were reading it, and it just kept going, and it turned into three books. And then I finally got enough money to have it typed because that used to cost a dollar a page. And we sent the first one through the friend to the agent, who was Perry Knowlton, who president of Curtis Brown. He became my agent and was my agent until his death. And when I sold that first book to Frederick Paul, he liked everything but wanted me to change one thing in the end. I called Terry up. I said, I can't change this. That's not how it happened. <laughs> and he said, figure out a way. Because they made a really good offer. When I didn't know it was a good offer because I didn't know they were going to pay me. Um, <laughs> never occurred to me that they paid you. <laughs> um, so I made the change. And the, it got a New York Times review. First book, paperback original, unknown writer. And the guys loved everything except the, this one thing that Fred made me change and said he would have preferred it the other way, but didn't know. 
So from that, I decided that books have an inherent truth. And that, and I'm, I'm that way when I edit, um, I help them make it clearer, but I don't change their story. Their story is or is not a story that speaks to me. And if I like the story, I'll work really hard with them on it to get the rough edges off and improve how it flows. But I don't touch their storyline. And in hell, when they write for me, the first thing they have to do is give me a two-line synopsis of the story. And based on that, I either approve or disapprove them writing the story. But there is tremendous value in putting the truth on the page because they're not getting it anywhere else. Everything is full of spin. I mean, we did a lot of news and TV. We were on 60 Minutes. Now, um, ABC News Tonight, um, BBC News Night, you name it, we've been on it. Um, with non-lethals and the books, too, because they like the connection to science fiction. But it was too early for that to be cool. It just made people uncomfortable. Um, you know, it was <laughs> the 80s, and you weren't supposed to do more than one thing. That's, um, that plus science fiction was weird back in the 80s. It was, it was well, strange. Well, you know, I liked it a lot better then because at the time I got into it, it was the last refuge of the unpredictable book. And now that's no longer the case because the tropes have created a generation that has pared things down into extremely predictable bits. And they like that. They like the, their comfy books in their way. They're bloody and they're gory and they're full of killing, That, <coughs> but they're comfy books because nothing ever goes any other way than, you know, the kid on the farm is discovered to be a prince. He meets the princess. They go on the track. They save the kingdom and he becomes ground. And I'm tired of reading that. Well, that's why you guys started uh, Perseid Press, right? Yeah. Perseid does books that are conscious of their literary history, but they're not literary books in the sense that they're not about anything. Um, a literary book, only has to be about life. Anton Chekhov comes to mind. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the other thing about science fiction in the 80s is that was back when uh, there was a future in science fiction. One of the things drives me nuts now is so much of the genre is about there being no future, which is bullshit. The dividing line also came when science fiction writers began getting their science from other science fiction writers and oh yeah derivative in a hurry and we've always wanted to explore scientifically that is in repeatable uh, game-like scenarios and and portrayals what actually happens what can happen given one simple discovery a twist uh, a use mm -hmm. of of a new fact. I'd like to go back to your point about how negative they've become. Um, this is kind of across the lines. It started in the 80s with books like In Cold Blood, Clockwork Orange, Bonfire of the Vanities. It really didn't start in science fiction. But this dystopian view has become a catechism, which is completely opposite to what I think matters. And some people, I mean, Tempest, when we did The Thieves' World, Bob Aspen said this was going to be the grottiest, worst town in fantasy, the armpit of fantasy. I want, you know, rough, tough characters. So I gave him Tempest. And some people thought he was an anti-hero, but not to me. He's a Homeric hero, a flawed mm -hmm. hero, which is fine. But they 
put everything on the line to keep dystopias at bay, which is what you have to do. The military, if you were in the service, if you're talking about about guns, the way you do, the military talks about something they call common values, which is, you know, save my wife, save my children, save the farm, save the country. And when you sign up and, and take the oath of office, it's the same, uh, I'm sorry, oath of service as a military person for everybody except the Marine Corps. It's the same. The Marine Corps' oath is different. Theirs is to protect the Constitution. Mm. And, of course, you know, if there were a real dust-up and we were very understaffed, the Marines would survive because they are the expeditionary arm of the Navy. Um, the Constitution says we have to have a standing Navy. We don't have to have a standing Army. After one of the 20th century wars, it got to the point where there were like seven people left in the Army. <laughs> we just still had a Marine <laughs> And that common values, that willingness to sacrifice, being in service to a goal greater than yourself or your personal wants, was something that defined myth um, and fiction and fairy tales and epic poetry and everything. We passed these values from generation to generation until recently. And all of a sudden you have a culture that seems to want to destroy itself. It's like it's eating its own tail. It's all it can think about. Why is that, do you think? Maybe it's a rejection of technology. They all want to have nothing working and they want to have horses, but they don't know how to ride them, nor do they know how to take care of them. Um, and they want to ride around and have lots of guns and ammunition and blue jeans will still exist. It doesn't matter how bad the future gets. There will still be blue jeans and plenty of them. Be a marketable commodity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I don't know. I've got, I've got a different theory. I think it has quite a lot to do with the crumbling of the utopian dream through the 20th century. We had the, the literati um, was, uh, was drawn into um they a marxist slant on everything very early on because it's so deeply romantic and as that view of the world lost the the dream starts to die there and then as um as the west wins the cold war there's no grand narrative no real enemy anymore to unite everyone around common values and no, it's that's smart. the lack of a of a parody enemy we happen to be the people yeah. who, for some reason, the, the Soviet Union's Gorbachev administration gave the invitation to come in and assess the military-industrial complex in what was still Soviet Moscow. Mm -hmm. And we took, uh, we had 47, but we ended up with 21 because the deputy, deputy secretary of defense didn't want anybody telling a different story than he told and we took our people in there and we did the first evaluations and we did the buying guide for the United States. And we had senior KGB guys and Russian generals coming up asking, why don't we take their surrender? Why don't we come in and impose our culture? Um, you know, these people had given up everything for science and science had given up nothing for them. That You couldn't make a phone call across Moscow. My boss had served every president since Eisenhower wrote the classified history of World War II. Like we called him up from the embassy, American embassy in Moscow, and we said, Ray, they couldn't make a phone call across this country. And he said, yes, Janet, but we, I know. And so they knew. But we had but to. But we mm -hmm. had to. 
You know, I mean, they, this business of being without a parody enemy, um, those of us who are around and what we did with non-lethality when we did it was it came from the question of what are we going to do if the Soviet Union falls? Since mm -hmm. we had a, a master planning document in the United States that was based on containment of con communism. And we said, when asked that question, and brought it back to our boss that we would ha have to focus on containment of barbarism. Mm -hmm. But they didn't like that word, so they settled for containment of conflict. But it, you might be right, because I knew a lot of people that, for reasons unknown to me, thought that the Soviet approach to governance was a populist approach, but it, it was it never was. It's just, it was right. a tyranny. But yeah, and when when you lose the grand narrative just on a hoi polloi level, um, when you lose the grand narrative, you start looking backwards instead of looking forwards, which is and it strikes me as deeply ironic and hopefully a short lived phenomenon that we're um, we're on the brink of the better future than we've ever been before and everyone's yes. looking backwards. And they're all looking backwards. And that's one of the reasons we're focusing so much on heroic fiction now, because we think it's important to reinstill that sense of why it's important to sacrifice and why you should give up your time and who you are and where you are. I mean, you've got 8 billion people out there mm -hmm. and you've got a world that now thinks that when it looks in its television set, it's looking out the window and this stuff is all happening right next door. Um, it's very difficult without role models, without some sense of where we should go um, as, a, as a culture to mm -hmm. build toward. You can't build toward an undefinable. you got to build toward something. I think something yeah. like only 10% of the total world population yet have access to the Internet. And the, the flight from modernity on the part of feudal cultures has cast them back into tribal modalities of belief and identity, which have never been uh, complementary or compatible. Or conducive to healthy long lives. Exactly. But you could also argue that, that with the advent of technology, if you look at look on the internet, look, we were talking about fandom. Uh, uh, there, there is a, a tribalism because of, because of the incredible hundreds of thousands of niches that the the internet and and social media and the and technology allows within the within that technological bubble uh yeah. that, that it's that it's actually kind of parsed us out and we have our our sci-fi tribe and our fantasy tribe and our you know our our second amendment tribe and our this tribe and our that tribe it, it seems like we we've all kind of devolved into these these spheres of perception from which we stand and look out into the world I understand you, and that's what should be happening. But what your cohort said, and what I really resonate with, is more that they're defining themselves by what they're against, mm. not what they're for. Right. Yeah. And that's a huge difference in the way you face the world every day. Well, it goes to another extreme also. Zuckerberg just ordered his Facebook staff to uh, – to study Maoist teachings in order to cozy up to their new Asian client, China. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty frightening. Maoist <laughs> <laughs> is, is not it's, it's, the way to go. 
I mean, if they were no. going to study Buddha, I'd be much more happy about it. It's um, cultural amalgamation is going to be required by the rate at which we're destroying the planet. Now, if you want to see what we're, we're really screwing up, I mean, Dave, you're close enough to our age to know that we all knew this was coming. Sure. And, you know, for a long time, but to, to a huge portion of the world's population, this is, well, let's just cut down more trees and then we can have those places for more people to live when what they should be doing is stopping the breeding. Absolutely. There's too many people. The, the planet can't sustain it. And if they don't accept self-control in that area, we're in big problem. But you've got people who divide themselves one, into groups. One country has had the balls to call it like it is. And it, and it was Britain who has now published a policy paper high in their hierarchy that says that unchecked reproduction is still the greatest threat to the survival of the species. And there's no question. You know, there's nothing we can do with technology that is worse than let them all have children. Help the ones that shouldn't have on, them. On the, on, the other, on the other hand, the, uh, the more economically advanced a society is and the greater access to birth control, the lower the birth rate is to the point yep. where and, in the West, it's down at replacement levels across, across quite a lot of the place. Yep. And the Palestinians are outbreeding the Israelis 10 to 1. I'm not taking sides. It's just that's what's going on. I couldn't agree with you more. No, no, I, I meant to, to, to voice it as a hopeful note. Yeah. There is Probably a whole known. I mean, yeah. we can fix this. It's not too late. <laughs> if you got a we're, lot of these people that want to hate something. We're forcing primitive cultures through a process that took this country 250 freaking years. Yeah, to, and took this culture a thousand years. Yeah. Well, you can't. So how? I don't know. <laughs> feudalism. It's a very high bar. Feudalism worked, but now you've got portions of the world all dying for metaphors or hoping to be able to die for a metaphor, whatever metaphor they have in mind, and deciding that everybody that doesn't believe the way they do is wrong. Now that's, I used to have black cats and silver cats, two of each, and the black cats would go to the basement and the silver cats would go to the top floor, and if they met on the landing, they fought. That's how basic this stuff is. It's, um, the human animal looks at everything and says, like me, not like me. Like me, I'll protect it. Not like me, I'm going to kill it. And that's in us pretty deep. And I'm not sure at all that the cullings that are going to have to happen that used to happen in our slow-moving societies don't still have to happen. And the, the urge to war, you can feel it welling up in various populations at a particular time. You get a percentage of people that want to do that. Um, and they're doing it for a reason that may be triggered by something as small as overcrowding. We don't know, we don't understand the part that genetics plays in human thinking. And Solicitor, which was the first thing that we wrote, really, I had just read Sociobiology by Ed Wilson. I was really taken with it. And um, I was looking at that issue, with what's hardwired in us? And how do we deal with what's hardwired in us if we have infinite power? And that's what Solicitor's about. Um, and sex and power, of course, are kind of come as a pair. And but, are an uh, ongoing issue, to be sure. Absolutely. Well, let me let me let me interject here. Uh, uh, we we pretty much tossed the clock out. Uh, uh, this is this is 
20-ish <laughs> minutes with Janet and Chris Morris. And and I, I think I can safely say this is probably the most political the round table has ever gotten. Uh, you in- started it. Well, <laughs> I started- <laughs> we don't have to use this. I mean, yeah, we can start again. You want oh, no, 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 no. If nothing, I mean, if nothing else, this is this is an excellent example of, of how writing is not just about words on a page, but about people living lives uh, uh, in a much larger world. And it's not been partisan political. It's been very much about the feedback from uh, narratives and politics and fiction and how they relate to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Question, but you kind of started it um, when you guys said, uh, wanted to talk about the fan base and the, I, did, I carefully stayed away from any critique of the gamers, but you know that the military axiom is you do what you're trained to do. And if you spend 14 hours a day killing little things and not caring about it and they get up and you kill them again, what does that say? What are we preparing you for? What are you preparing yourself for? Um, it's certainly not being a literate member of a reasoning society. Oh, my. Oh, my. And and with that gauntlet thrown, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, but I, th- <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think we may have actually found a topic for, for another roundtable dialogue uh, uh, at that point, and, and that would be a doozy. But, but friends, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw this to a close uh, uh, at this point. Janet, Chris Morris, uh, as always when we get together, the, the conversation is unpredictable, uh, but always delightful and informative and inspiring on, on many levels. So thank you both for making the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It's an honor every time. Absolutely. Dan, that that conversation was like I say singular in the round Deeply table experience. Fun. What what do you what's your takeaway from this? What are you what are you walking away from this conversation with? Oh man, I'm 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 wishing I had been more familiar with them before we uh, started because we could have gone on for hours. Yeah, I know. This is probably why I brought stuff. you in at the last minute because that's exactly <laughs> what would have happened. <laughs> What? Yeah, wondrous fun. No, it's it's all it's all stuff that's very close to my heart. So I've been uh, I've been having a great time and been uh, jotting down a new re- jotting down a new reading list. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and for me, uh, uh, I, I guess the thing that that that, that hit me uh, and and raised a huge question mark and and made me flinch. Uh, which is always a good sign, uh, which means I need to look at that, is is the, the idea of uh, population being our greatest threat. Uh, Absolutely. And, and while that, that may not necessarily uh, have a direct impact on my writing, uh, it's, it's something that's important to me and resonates with me in, in a way that I, I don't have an answer for. And as a speculative fiction writer... That's kind of why we do this is to find answers to those questions. So so that's that 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 struck me in a way that will stick with me and I will I will be pondering that. So the joys of speculative fiction are asking questions that make you uncomfortable and spinning visions that make your dreams grow big. Oh, beautiful. Nicely Thank said, you. sir. Nicely said. Well, so dear friends, uh uh here's here's the thing. 
that conversation, you didn't know where that was going. Neither did we. And it evolved into this marvelous exploration uh, uh, into the byways of, of culture and politics, global the global experience. So come back in seven days. We're going to bring this whole ensemble back. We're going to throw a guest writer right in the middle of the bunch. They're going to pitch a story idea, and this group is going to brainstorm it. And, oh, baby, I guarantee oh, that poor soul. <laughs> he's, he's, he's primed. He's steeled and ready. I promise you. I promise you. So, oh. so I, well, Dan, I, Dan, I found your questions and the directions. You, you kind of pushed this to be fascinating and, and very unusual. I'd love to do more of it. That I would, too been a pleasure meeting you i'm definitely going to pick up some of your books <laughs> we we will definitely foster that connection because i can only see fabulosity spilling out from it like a like a great fountain of awesomeness but friends do come back in seven days uh, uh the round table will fulfill its mandate it's 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 manifest destiny here in the potosphere which is to seek out literary gold wherever we can find it uh but that that's you know that's seven days away that's a long time dan what do you think our listeners should be doing between now and seven days from now i would say um look up uh look up one of the figures that we mentioned in passing on on this show that you're not familiar with and read up on them and learn their connection to how the world you live in has developed it'll 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 open a new vista for you excellent advice see that that that's that's the maybe the most practical au revoir advice we've been given here on the round this has been a fabulous episode dear friends i will tell you as i always do uh uh creature of habit and tradition that i am that you find what you're looking for so look for the good stuff. Look for the awesome, the blue label sitting on the top shelf. And if you look for it, I promise you, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.